my next guest. I've been on the road with Pink, and on February 4th, they'll kick off their own headlining tour at Stubbs in Austin, Texas. Here with a song from their album, Get On It Is The Kin. What a rush that must have been for this week's guests on Conan O'Brien. I can imagine even at the level of stardom and professional success these guys have had, they must have felt some fear. Fear's a normal reaction to things. It keeps us safe. Remember when Don Miguel Ruiz said this in episode one. Fear is something completely normal. It's something that we all feel. And it's a great tool because fear will let us know that we are in danger that our body's in danger, that our mind is in danger, then fear is going to make us go cautious when something is not safe. The fear is not a problem at all. The problem is when the fear becomes irrational, when it's just fear for fear with no reason. Here, Miguel shares that we all feel fear. Even the most evolved of us still experience fear. It's completely normal. Now, imagine yourself standing in front of 20,000 fans, they're cheering you on, wildly excited that it's you. You step on stage, you look out, and you take this moment in. What comes up for you? Do you feel excited? Do you feel scared? Just notice how you feel. As I mentioned before, I had a major fear of public speaking just like almost every single person on the planet. Stage fright is no joke, and you can feel like you're dying when it's happening. Have you ever felt that before? It literally feels like your heart is going to blow out of your chest or throat. It's not fun and feels so real, too. Of course it's not, but damn, it sure feels like it. Torald and Isaac Korn of the Kin, now called the Brothers Korn, have been cheered on by 20,000 fans. How crazy is that? These two amazing souls opened up for Pink on her tour a couple years ago and had the thrill of sharing their incredible voices with her audience. Listen to these masters performing a song they were working on at the Chateau de Razic in the south of France. I thought about putting just a small part of the song in the podcast, but it's so damn good that I decided to put in the whole song. It really is one of my favorites that they do and gives me goosebumps. No 
As I always say on the Fisher Dragon podcast, what you're most afraid of and most resisting are the very things that will set you free. They're your moneymaker, your deepest purpose, and will give you everything you've ever wanted in your life. Just remember this. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It's our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? But actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine, as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us. It's in all of us. And as we let our own light shine, we subconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. 
This from Marianne Williamson's brilliant quote, Our Deepest Fear. She's big into A Course in Miracles. I cannot recommend that material enough. I pray you check it out and do a deep dive into your fear as you study it. For the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. Joseph Campbell. Everything is about perspective. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Albert Einstein once observed that uh, you have the most fundamental and major decision that you have to make in your life is this. Do I live in a friendly or a hostile universe? This from the late Wayne Dyer and one of my all-time favorite quotes. Things literally do change when we change our perspective, not just in theory, but in actuality. In quantum theory, scientists figured out that particles of matter act differently when being observed versus when they are not being observed. In psychology, this is known as the Hawthorne effect. It refers to subjects altering their behavior when they're aware that an observer is present. For example, when a psychologist observes his patients or when a person is aware that he is being recorded, we're doing it all the time both at a conscious and unconscious level, as well as in the infinite field of possibility. We are constantly affecting our experience on all levels. We are that powerful. I remember when I was about to be on NBC Nightly News in Southern California in April of 2007. Let's just say I was equally as excited as I was shitting my pants. That was the biggest opportunity of my life and also the scariest. Now I've done some crazy stuff in my life and faced many fears, whether it be on a motocross track or skiing double black diamond runs, totally stoned out of my head as a young man. This was different though. This was about me and what I had created. Was I the person the world thought I was? Let's just say it this way. I had to face one of my biggest dragons, the imposter syndrome. Maybe you know it too. As the days tick closer and closer to the filming date, I had two choices. Run and hide, cancel the filming and bury my head in the sand, or rise up and change my perspective. There was no turning back. I was all in. So of course, like I had done many times on the starting line racing motocross, I went for it scared out of my wits, and totally excited. Welcome to the Face Your Dragon podcast, where we help you, a messenger with a mission, leverage your fear to amplify your voice in the world. On the show, we open up the concept that what you are most afraid of and most resisting are the very things that will set you free. With courage, with clarity, with contribution, you can have it all. This show will engage in deep, enriching conversation with thought leaders, best-selling authors, celebrities, athletes, icons, and regular Joes who have faced their fear and are now using it to create impact in the world. I'm Brad Axelrad, and I'll be your host. I have so much respect for this week's guests. We've had some amazing times singing and dancing together as members of the Association of Transformational Leaders in recent years. To an outsider, it appears that the Brothers Corn found success in the music industry. As the kin, they were signed to Interscope Universal Records. Their music appeared in major movies. They appeared on Conan and traveled the world, both headlining and alongside the likes of Coldplay, Pink, and Rod Stewart. Pretty cool. Despite all of this, however, they always felt like outcasts. They experienced firsthand how restrictive the musical landscape was, and after 15 years, they chose to stop chasing who they were supposed to be and rebelliously show up as themselves. 
They started Farm Artists as a way to give new and reinventing artists the support they'd wished they'd had while honing their identity. Those who embark upon the three-month journey with them are challenged to embrace mantras like dare to suck through vocal, lyric, and artist identity sessions, resulting in recordings and performances that demonstrate the rarest of commodities, your unique voice. Listen in as these champions share from a very raw and real place. Torald and Isaac of the Kin, the Brothers Corn. I'm so excited to have you today on the Face Your Dragon podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much, Brad. Thank you, Brad. Pleasure to be here with you. So, guys, I just really curious, like I say on most of these podcasts, I literally have no idea where the conversation is going to go. And I trust that whatever is supposed to show up for us and all the listeners is going to be awesome and transformational and both confronting and soothing at the same time. Cool. Yeah, we're ready to the the coaster. So yeah, Costa Rica to Ojai. So guys, tell me, what are some of the biggest dragons you've had to face? What are the fears that you've had to face to become world-class recording artists opening up for Pink and Coldplay? And you guys were on Conan too, right? I mean, that's pretty big. Yeah, Yeah, we were. Um, Wow, what a great question. That's not a question people get asked enough, I have a feeling. We've faced different dragons. I guess as brothers, we've faced some collective dragons. To start from personal dragons, I would say if I had to pick one, it was embracing my fear. I guess my fear came in the face of uh, mental illness that that happened to me at a young age. After uh, quite an intense family experience when our father and mother divorced, it came as quite a big shock. I think uh, we've been talking about it a bunch lately. I think what was so shocking for us was our family was such a fairy tale. It was sort of like the kind of hippie mom and dad, and we were kind of like everyone's favorite family to come over and stay with. And we had this great pool in the backyard, and everyone would always come around to our place. And we actually, thinking back on it, I didn't know what divorce was. And it was, uh, this was of late to early 90s, Australia. And I didn't have one friend that was divorced. It's sort of a strange realization now that when our mother seemingly overnight divorced our father within about a month period. It was as if um, something I didn't know was possible happened. And uh, as a really young, empathic, sensitive kid, I I recently wrote about it. It was as if my mom had died in a lot of ways when she brought that to the family. And kind of in a psychic break moment at 12 years old, I realized she was no longer safe as this woman that I trusted. And so I guess a voice in my own head was born. And it started out kind of slowly. It was sort of a voice that would say, you know, touch that tree three times so your dad doesn't die in a car accident or touch that four times so you'll live till the end of the day. It was sort of like a calm, authoritarian kind of voice. But I started listening to a voice that told me to do things. And what I didn't know, and it was very undiagnosed at the time, was that it was the beginnings of obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm part happy I was so undiagnosed and part a huge ambassador of people being really aware of this stuff now because part of me is happy I wasn't put on drugs early on and part of me wished I knew what was happening to me and so I was I went very undiagnosed for many many years and I covered the gamut you name the fear you name the, the trigger I've had it you know fear of being gay fear of contamination fear of germs and then it started to kind of turn into something that started to haunt my adult life as I got turned about 23, 24, I became afraid of energy. I became afraid of people's vibes. And I think it was a turn on what I was most fascinated by. I was really fascinated about by the healing arts and about ritual 
And I think as I got even more scared, I started to turn what I loved into the fears themselves. So I started to, you know, over-ritualize and over-sage and overdo ceremonies. And, and I became kind of like a, I'd spend hours a day doing these really strange, obsessive, compulsive rituals. And so I kind of hit a rock bottom when I realized I was spending like half my day trying to keep myself safe with prayers. So I, I ended up in an intensive care program. And along the way, I've hit a couple of bottoms along that journey. And the, so the last bottom I hit was when I was about 30 years old. And I, I realized that the reason I was so scared and still so unwell was that I hadn't passed through the narrow keyhole into my own trust. I'd never trusted. So people would tell me to not do certain behaviors and take a risk and jump in. And I wouldn't trust enough to fully jump in two feet in. And not the kind of warrior stance to feed him, but the kind of stance that just would let myself embrace feeling fucking uncomfortable, which would mean risking what my fears were saying might happen to me if I don't do the action, if I don't do the clearing, if I don't control. So I had a really wild experience. I had a, a wild moment where I was, I used to go out running and in the middle of this run one time, I lay under the stars. It was New York City and I looked up and I saw a few stars and for some reason, I was just hit by this thought, I wonder if there's ever many shooting stars in New York. I've never seen one. And it was at a really kind of big crossroads for me. I was really getting ready to say, fuck it and jump in and trust. And I looked up at the sky and I said, All right, I'm going to make a wish. If I see a shooting star right now, I'll trust forever. And I said it with a smile and I just, you know, lay back down. And as clear as anything, this shooting star uh, screamed across the Hudson River. Mm above my face and I couldn't believe it. About two seconds later, someone went, did you see that from across? And I jumped up like a, a raving lunatic and like screamed, did you see that? And like, I, I needed the confirmation. That's what happened to me. And I've been on a quest to choose trust every time since. And what it turned into was to embrace being, you know, the dragon of being uncomfortable, of being really afraid and embracing that anyway of staying in my body even when my body's saying, get out, it might be dangerous. And so I started to really counterintuitively go beyond being uncomfortable. Instead of listening to those alarms, I started to make friends with those alarms. Mm. And I quickly brought what I was doing to voice students that I had. I started hearing voices come out of them that I'd never heard. And this is going back a number of years now. And I, I took on a whole private clientele and eventually brought me up to Ojai and I started coaching people on their voice their non-musical voice, just their voice in their life. And really what I'd stepped into was being able to show people how to be uncomfortable, how to be with their most physically, emotionally, and mentally uncomfortable parts of themselves and allow those colors to return back to their life again. And that's really been my specialty with what Isaac and I have created now with farm artists and speaking on creativity and expression. Uh, I just want to comment and acknowledge you for being so courageous in your share right now. I mean, I wasn't expecting to go this deep right off the bat. So I just am so grateful for your courage to face this. This is a big deal. But I wanted just a little bit more clarity quickly from Please. 12 until when were you really battling this OCD? And I mean, that's pretty big. Well, thank you. First of all, it's a pleasure. I was battling it from 12 to about 18. It was pretty bad. Looking back, it, it was a complete derailing of any quality inroads with friendships and, and relationships. I, I still maintained some friendships and relationships, but nothing like I could have. It was a, a complete distraction. And I'd often disappear into kind of six-month windows of, of phobias and things, and then I'd kind of come out of it. Around 19 or 20, 
21, I had a moment of kind of relief. I, I don't know exactly what happened. I did a few men's work things that just gave me a little bit more radicalness to say, fuck it, I'm just going to doing it anyway. I kind of had a bit more of that spirit around me. So I think I had a little, I came above the water for a few years. And then I had a situation and I had a falling out with a friend at the time that just perfectly, perfect storm triggered all of these deep seated fears and, and unresolved things from my childhood. And it really sent me into adult onset OCD. And that's when I really, it went from not just a teenage childhood experience that I grew out of, but it, it went back to, you know, very extreme experience. And I would say I came out of it and I've been slowly, not just healing from it, but teaching on the subject for about six years now. So I'd say from 12 to 30, I was in it. Wow. Isaac, I'm curious to hear seeing your brother that you love. You know, like what, what was your experience sort of reflecting that and witnessing this? My brother was really the answer to my prayers as a young kid. We're about three years apart. And it was really hard to see him in these places. He's also my business partner, as you know. So, you know, it was a kind of a double-edged sword in a way because on the one hand, I knew that, you know, the difficulty was that my life was on hold when he was in these places too, in, in, a, in a way. But I, I knew that what we were doing together was the only thing that was stopping him from going into a, the rabbit hole. It was really intense. You know, my brother was the answer to my prayers when I was a kid. And he was also the salt in my wound, to be honest. When I was born, I lived all my life with the story that when I came out, you know, my father was very young and our parents met in an ashram. And within three weeks, my mother was pregnant. The story goes from my mother's mouth that uh, when I came out, he said, quick, put it back, you know. And I, I read this as uh, I was casted out. You know, the evidence was that when my brother first came, you know, he was a remarkably cute baby and still is pretty cute. <laughs> <laughs> I just felt like an outcast from my father and he offered him this love that truly I didn't see, I didn't feel in myself. It was so easy and so simple and so physical. Later, I heard his part of the story, but I was still living through my mother's story and recollection of it. Man, be very careful in, in believing your mother's stories. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you that's a $50 tip. Anyway, so here I am as a young kid, you know, being, you know, just confirming that my brother was the confirmation and evidence that I was unlovable and outcasted. And, you know, I was a very shy kid, you know, but despite having played over to over a million people and our last show was supporting Coldplay for the only Australian show of their Ghost Stories tour. And, you know, just feeling, having to really get pushed past being different and just this unlovable kid and shy, push past all of that and do something that I never thought I would do. I thought I was always going to be a lawyer. And then uh, when I was 15, I was standing next to my new best friend at a party and he, uh, he was playing the guitar and he just looked at me and said, sing for me, Zach. And I'd never really sung before, but just something came over me and I downloaded, you know, this melody somehow and it just, I started singing the blues and the whole party gathered around and he looked at me and said, I didn't know you could sing. And I said, well, I didn't either. And so he said, well, you're going to, you're going to sing for my band. We got a gig in two and a half weeks. And I said, okay. And two and a half weeks later, sure enough, I was singing to 250 kids jumping up and down and I was hooked. And it wasn't until Tarot and I, you know, Tarot went into studying music from a very young age and it was his refuge from a very young age and studied jazz. And, you know, like I said, I, it kind of came to be as an accident, but I just followed it for the thrill of it. And 
Torald and I came together. I was 18 and I, our father was getting remarried and we didn't know what to get him for a, a gift. So we came up with the idea that we'd write him a song. And it was, we were hiding in the bathroom so no one could hear us. And the natural acoustics of the bathroom were just incredible. And we, for the first time, heard the harmonies, the brother harmonies. And to this day, it's the reason why I still love, you know, just, it just keeps me wanting to be partners in music and just because the sum is so much greater. But, you know, to get back to your question, you know, at that moment, I discovered that I too was a downloader and I too had a voice and it was late in the game. I was, you know, 15, 16 and, uh, but never too late, you know, to find that love of music and, you know, to see your brother virtually with a knife to his own head is soul crushing. It's the only way I can put it. And, you know, to be in partnership with someone that not only shares your wounds, but also is the salt to a wound that he never had. And then to look at his life and realize that, you know, he's struggled in a way that I never will. And, you know, to make the space for him to fully express that. So it's all really beautiful. All of our work is mostly centered around facing the dragon that tells you that you're not good enough or that you're, that you're too weird or you're too unlovable or your, your voice sucks or you're not good enough for this and you don't deserve to shine or to tell your story or just to have a go, find your voice. So, you know, it's really nice to share our story with you because um, we're often mulching with others on their story. So it's cool. Thanks for having us. <laughs> you bet, man. So there's a sense of relief being able to sort of share our, our wounding, right? Mm. With that, without dumping it, is that kind of what's happening for you? There's, I mean, of course you share it. You guys are thought leaders. You're out in the space. You know, we, we met at the Association of Transformational Leaders, mostly strumming around the, the fire up on the hilltop in Lake Arrowhead. That was just such a magical night for all of us. I thank you guys for that. I mean, I get that relief. There's the fine line though, because sometimes I'll notice I'll dump my story out when I'm not really sort of mindfully trying to express it in a way that creates transformation in myself and others. So I, I think you guys really did that well. And I, again, I just appreciate your courage in sharing so authentically. You know, so many people want to show up with their best foot forward and you guys are showing up as authentic and real and Sounds like we might have done some of the main same men's work. We'll talk about that after. But I, I'm like, I'm hearing some of the language like, ah, we might have done some of the same stuff. So, guys, I mean, this is a very, very real and raw experience that so many listeners have had. I've certainly had my own experience around this kind of um, hero's journey of from pain in the pit to triumph to pain again. It never really goes away, right? We keep peeling layers back and we get deeper and deeper into the into the core stuff. I've been exploring codependency lately. Uh, that's been my most recent dragon I'm facing and it feels like one of the biggest so what would you say that a lot of, you know, you'd mentioned people not really knowing their voice or having the courage to share it. They're not good enough. Like what, what have you noticed sort of as a reoccurring theme with a lot of people you've worked with that shows up for them when you're working with them? Well, I mean, I feel that what really comes up for us, you know, I, I feel like our true tribe member is someone who, who knows deep inside them that they're totally a badass. You know, they, they know they're, they're powerful. In fact, if anything, their power is what scares them the most. Maybe even just a reluctance to step fully into it, what, what the responsibility of that shine. Right. You know, someone that has flirted with stepping fully in or maybe has stepped just one foot out, or they're even on the court now, you know, watching the game, they just know they're meant to be, you know, a star player of their game. You know, someone really that has, you know, dealt with going through the darkness but needs 
need some big brothers to to make it the last part of the way. And then also someone who really feels like maybe they just don't belong, like that they haven't found their place in the world to tell their story, that they haven't found that elixir to, to refine their story and maybe feels a little casted out, you know, not accepted in, you know, really wants to find a way to connect back. And it really comes up around music, you know, using the excuse in the gateway of music. Really, our specialty is, is your voice and your story inside a sound. You know, that journey of discovering your voice in your story is for everyone. And, and music brings up such a vulnerability. You know, the singing voice, that space brings up such a vulnerability for people. You know, we work with people that have a talent and yet they were told at nine, you know, that they, they shouldn't sing by their mom who said it, you know, lightly, you know, made a comment about how they didn't have the best pitch and it's haunted them. And now, you know, they're 36 and they found us and they were like, okay, I've got all of these monkeys in my way, even though I've, it's always been something I've wanted to do. And it can be something that sort of simple. They've built this resistance around doing something they've inevitably always wanted to do. So they find us at that right time in that right place. And then we work with people that know that their music's never going to find a huge audience on Spotify. However, it changes their lives entirely once they release it and we end up at some rad cocktail party they put on to share their EP they just created with us. And and they leave being a rock star in their own life. That's the power of music. You know, we can't believe how powerful music is. We, we still every day wonder how it's so effective at cutting to the heart of uh, connecting humans together. So that, that, that would be our two, you know, the biggest things we see are people that are reluctant but know they're badasses and people that have felt outcast but know that their connection's strong. Brilliantly said, my friend. Isaac, what's your take on that? Yeah, he nailed it. I mean, for me... Being outcasted, I really call that tribe. And being shy and, and introverted, I really call the tribe that are that are trembling but know that they've got that wide connection. And that's why they're trembling. Because it's not so simple, you know? And standing in front of an arena of people and taking all of that in fully, you have to take in that you are like love and lovable and <laughs> vulnerable but strong. And so, you know, I think that the people that have so much to give and like don't know where the courage is going to come from a second before they start. And that's okay. You know, I guess we're about radical inclusion, you know, of everyone. So you don't have to have a special certification to, to create, you know, it's a group sport. We do it together. <laughs> that's awesome. I just am thinking of the hundreds of times I've been in front of large audiences up to, you know, 300 and the intensity of the energy of everybody looking at you, maybe judging you, right? The fear of speaking being the number one fear on the planet of most people. Certainly my greatest fear for a long time, but I've faced that dragon. And what I like to say is that what you're most resisting and most afraid of are the very things that will set you free. They're your money maker. They're your highest purpose. They're your deep work on the planet. It's your life's work, whatever you're most resisting and most afraid of. So my question is this. There's a lot of speakers listening to this, a lot of uh, potential singers, me being one. I've, I love to sing, and I've, yet I've never owned that. And what you're suggesting, it's really interesting to see that surface. How do you manage the energy of all the people sort of looking at you? I, I tend to be really interactive when I'm on stage. I like inclusion, like you're saying. I 
I tend to really want people to be engaged. We're in a conversation on when I'm on stage. It's not about me. It's about we. But sometimes you do need to just be be presenting. But, you know, I see you guys really being really inclusive in your singing. I don't know if you can do that when you're on stage with Pink or Coldplay or something, if you can create that level of intimacy or inclusion. But what's your thoughts on how to manage all the thoughts, the dragons, the, the fears, and all the energy with all those people staring at you? Like, how do you get over stage fright and the fear of public speaking? What do you do? That's such a great question. Well, you know, first things first, I mean, it is possible to include any amount of people we've discovered. When we were opening for Pink, it was about 20,000 people a night. We just had a shared commitment. We had a shared goal. Half of it was unspoken and half of it was preyed upon together. Uh, It was to go out to that room, none of which really knew us, and to really grab them and bring them and rally them together to express with us. And we stepped out with that vision and it was radical. And, you know, I guess we saw how people could go out and be afraid and hope they were liked and hope they're accepted by 20,000 people wishing it was pink and not an opening act they'd never heard of. But we just didn't see it like that. We just changed the perspective. We changed the game. I guess maybe partially it was naive. We just became like really good at opening for people, loving that challenge. Maybe it's a bit of a rebel heart thing to be like that. However, it was just a perspective. Like when you, we have this opportunity as people to step out and play the game however we want. And we can literally see one way to step in front of people, or we can literally put on a completely different perspective. So that was just a choice. And what we accomplished by doing that is that everyone in that room became our audience. In a strange way, we weren't opening for a brief moment. We were, <laughs> it was our audience. It was a really amazing feeling. <laughs> cool. uh, and it happened most of the time. And I guess the other thing I would say about stage fright and all of these thoughts, feelings, sensations, and emotions that arise, no one is as scary or judgmental as your own mind. No one's thinking about you quite as much as they're thinking about themselves. And in mastering your own mind, meaning embracing and being okay and letting be your own experience of your own thoughts, feelings, sensations, and emotions, everyone else has become so less scary. And we do a lot of work on that subject, returning to the whole body instrument and forming a new relationship to the part of you that's scared. Instead of kicking that part out, really allowing it um, a comfy bed, not the stage, but the comfy bed. And, comfy and uncomfortable. Um, yeah, comfortably uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah, I think it's also exactly what Charles said, being able to be up there, have all of those little voices screaming at you, be okay with them. Maybe even thank them for trying to protect you in that moment because it seems like the alarms are going off and it's you're in danger, but you're not, but you don't know that. But just to be able to be okay with them screaming louder than your voice can scream, but no one else can hear them. You know, I'm a true believer that if the music and the content that you're about to override those voices with is anchored in the truth of your being and has done the work traverse, to cross the bridge, to take the heroine's journey, to get to the elixir of your life and your message and your, you know, assignment, so to speak, then I think that what comes out of your mouth, it's like stepping into a luxury car as opposed to like a beaten up, you know, song. Like it's just, you, you get in there and it's smooth. It's a smooth ride and you can trust it. And it's got seat warmers, you know, <laughs> like it, it's going to feel comfortable. And so it's a strong, sturdy vehicle, a, a, a song or a, a well-crafted speech that's based in your honesty. 
is a sturdy, reliable, well-made vehicle. And so it helps. I find having something you that is anchored in your real honest truth and um, you've done the work, then it helps. It helps um, override the alarm system that's bound to be there anyway, you know. Yeah, well said, guys. So there's a lot to say for having the courage to share our truth and our deepest, darkest secrets, if you will. I mean, I was so impressed that you said, you know, you had the fear of being gay. Or, I mean, I think almost every man goes through that at some level in their life. Like, am I gay or whatever? Am I, am I whatever? Any, any of those thoughts. And it was just really powerful to hear you say that, to own it. And that right. does set us free, right? Having the, the courage to do that. So what Barnett said, and I thought it was so brilliant, Barnett Bain, the producer of What Dreams May Come, that was on episode four, we love him. Yeah, Barnett's amazing, right? He shared <laughs> that you just got to turn the light on. The dragon's in the corner, and you just turn the light on. You know, and turn the light on and love the thing. And it, <laughs> and that's really what you guys said there. You've got to love your fear. You've got to embrace all of the chemicals that are happening in the moment, and instead of uh, really clenching and closing down. So, totally. Yeah, good stuff, well you guys. So let's talk about farm artists. What are, you, what are you guys up to? Tell me a little bit more with specificity. What's going on? Well, I, so I guess it started on a, on a fun, crazy car ride. Um, Isaac and I had moved out on a gut feeling and a partial whim to Los Angeles finally a number of years ago. And we were riding for you know pop stars and ending up in random sessions with people we hadn't met riding for hopeful records we wanted to be on. And we looked at each other and we're like, you know, this could work. And if we just, you know, use our personality, eventually we'll get the right cuts on the right records. And we just knew somewhere it was like, yeah, it's not our path. Like, like we want to write for big stars. Yes. But we want to write for big stars because of who we are. And we just knew we, it wasn't our pathway. So we, we looked at each other and we're, right, we're driving to this writing session and we got hopelessly lost kind of in this heated debate, passionate discussion on, on what it could be that is next for us. What we didn't get. Yeah, we arrived at this idea. Well, what did we never get along our journey? You know, what big brothering did we not receive or let let us receive? Nice. <laughs> so we started to talk all about it. And I'd been a coach for a number of years since I was a teenager. And Isaac and I have both been mentoring people without even knowing it. And we just got into this great long car ride. We were 45 minutes late. We'd been circling around Civic Center Drive in, in Beverly Hills, lost. And by the time we got out of the car, we had the name Farm. We had the idea and we did a little fist bump on the idea and left it there. And in two weeks, we had our first client. We mapped out at the time a two-month process. It's become pretty much a nine to 12-week process till now, till completion. But at the time, we mapped out this this journey. And three weeks later, we had a, a young client from D.C. had flown into Los Angeles. We found a producer partner to, to join our team and Two and a half to three years later, we're at, at almost 35 artists developed and completed, and uh, we've expanded. So the process that we've come up with is is quite simple. You, in working with us, you go we go from inception to completion and celebration of an EP or an album, multiple styles, and the journey is really about discovering and finding a home for your specific voice and story of who you are in your life for the marketplace. And you have two big brothers that come happily and triumphantly along with you until uh, we celebrate and pop a bottle of bubbly together. That's so great. And there's multiple things along the journey. Uh, we have, you know, we invent everything together. Isaac could tell you a bit more well, about the sessions. I mean, really just instead of trying to, you know, a lot of our experience when we let 
other people into our creative process when we did <laughs> is uh, we often found that they were trying to fit us into, you know, a, an already defined hole in the market or, or, or some archetype, you know, let's write a song like Coldplay. Let's write a song like, you know, Katy Perry, you know, you name it. They were trying to fit us in like the, the our peg into a, a different size hole. And, you know, we flip that script and we say, no, we're kind of anti-homogeny in the sense that we're focused on pointing the telescope back around to the artist and studying their colors, studying, you know, we call it a musical cosmology because we want to know what the interstellar arrangement of all of your inspirations are. What did you grow up listening to? doesn't matter about the style. What do you love now? What do you listen to when you're on your own? What music would you take to a deserted island if you only could choose five? Like we're interested in poking inside the, the artist and really, I guess, knowing that artist is like their best friend. And then, you know, helping paint from those colors, maybe colors you didn't even know you had or you'd forgotten or, you know, maybe colors that you thought you weren't allowed to use. Maybe getting rid of the paintbrush. I don't know. But, you know, we're, we're not interested in it sounding like any preconceived mm. idea of where it could have been. We're interested in exploring. We learned that. We learned that from experience. I mean, when the kin finally was signed to Interscope Universal, we, you know, we, we really signed for our kind of rawness. And, and when we started recording it, we, you know, we ended up in the studio with Tony Visconti, who's amazing producer, David Bowie and T-Rex, so many amazing people. But when we captured you know, us, we didn't quite know how to really distill it and refine it from lyric to story to song yet. And it sort of kind of fell flat for a big company like Universal to pitch to radio. And so we started kind of chasing our tail. You know, we hate to sound obvious, but we started to chase our tail to find out what was commercially viable for the, for the kin. And it was a long journey and it didn't end up bearing the fruit that we wished. So instead of doing the chase the tail methodology, we go deep into the distinction as part of the process long before we end up recording. You know, we're really about you being you. I mean, there's no one for sure that sounds like you if we dare to distill it. And there's so many games along the way. Musical cosmology, Isaac said, you know, our own version of a hero's and heroine's journey. Um, I coach something called the whole body instrument. So it's really a lot about becoming prepared and intimate with me as a whole body instrument so that when we're in the studio together, you know, we have a language where I can really help guide this person to being vulnerable with me. And so that that vulnerability is captured by the diaphragm at the microphone. And it's all centered around having an experience that the microphone might capture. It's not through the, hey, how do I sound good? How do I look good? How do I present well? It's the opposite. It's through the door called, how do I be comfortably uncomfortable? How do I be most revealed and how do I be truly intimate in a way that an experience might come forth that everyone will get to play in their car later? And so we really go through the experience door, not the sound good door. And then the rest is really about capturing great performances and great instruments and great production and having a party to celebrate it. I love it. I mean, there's just so many parallels for speakers, thought leaders, change agents, individuals who want to share a message and the trials and tribulations of doing that, finding your core message, facing all the fear that stops you from sharing it. There's just so many correlations here. It's interesting to sort of frame it or ground it in music. I've never really put those two together. And the process that you guys are creating is really, as you've said, helping people find their voice and share it. It's really, really cool. 
So what's next for you guys? Are you still planning on cruising around and jamming on the guitar and microphone or what, what does that look like? Are you more focused? <laughs> like what are you guys going to still do any more big stage and stadium stuff or what, what are you doing? Well, what would, you know, our vision came, that came really clear to us was how do we help the most people find their distinction and their shine? So, you know, what really came to us is farm artists, you know, helping develop one artist at a time is still something we're extremely passionate about. But we really wanted to, you know, start getting to a bigger platform. So what we're in the midst of planning is is a first sort of performance keynote hybrid where we really, you know, tell stories and teach on, on our main principles and our main gifts that we want to pass on and really work interactive with people in a room eventually. But we want to start by kind of stepping into that kind of hybrid performance place. Not exactly sure when, when we'll be ready. It obviously, we've got a lot of friends and allies that we'll have the guidance of. Obviously, we've performed a lot. But the idea of just straight performance is less interesting to us these days. We still do it, of course. And we very much do it with Braves, which is an artist project that we have. However, our, our focus really is about getting dirty with people, rallying people together and seeing them come to life with us. So whatever, whatever stage allows us to do that into the future, we'll be there. Yeah. And just the short answer is hell no. Of course, we're going to be performing. As uh, yes. On every stage we can get to. And, <laughs> you know, we've just gotten such a huge kick out of being in service to others. And, you know, it's like medicine to me in particular to include others and to be a support for others where we were never supported or never let others in to support. So, you know, and the good thing about what we do is that it really isn't a big time commitment for most people. And at the end of nine weeks, you'll have your own EP. So it's like it's between two to five hours a week of radical immersion work. You know, that's not a big amount even for the busiest of people. So, I'm just excited to be, you know, right where we are as the world's waking up to finding their place in music, you know. It's great timing to get, you know, people are really sharing their voice more than ever. Um, you know, everybody's speaking up to the presidency or whatever it may be. Lots of people finding their voice and sharing it. Social media, it is a new paradigm we are in. And everyone has a voice and it's great that, that more will find it and through music. So, so guys, where does everybody find you? Okay, great. Well, best place is Brothers Corin. So Brothers, K-O-R-E-N.com. And then also we have a, another separate farm artists website, which is just farm. I'm saying it terribly because we're Australian. Farm. Farm. <laughs> Australian. We sh so should have picked a name of a company that well, we can Just say. Brothers Corin, you have a link to farm. Exactly. There farm. You go. I sound terrible saying it, don't we? Farm. Farm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, F-A-R-M artists.com as well. It gives away our accent. Farm. <laughs> it Fam. does. You, you sound like a British person doing the American. They, they, they get really intense when they get all American too. All right. So what's the, the final thing from each of you that what's one action someone should take or what, how, how do you challenge the audience? Wow. That's a good question. That's a great question. Just the, the audience in general. Yeah. I would like to say, I don't know why this came to me. Clearly, you just put us on the spot. But I would like to say that, you know, start writing down and recording, voice noting, writing down the things that come to you in the middle of the night and when you first wake up and when you're going to bed. Just write down instead of think, oh, that was a cool idea and go back to sleep. Get up and write it down. You never know when that's going to feed you and feed the real world, so to speak. I don't know why that came to me, but 
That yeah, is. It's so good. I actually was saying that on a, on a podcast interview with Freeman Michaels the other day that I get all these amazing things and I don't write them down all night. I'm like, oh, I'll remember it. It was so vivid. Of course I'll remember it, but I always forget them. Well, I, I guess it was for you then. I, I feel the same. Way. <laughs> I've lost some great music ideas and then I've forced myself to get up before and some of them have become our biggest songs. Yeah. The biggest Kin song was from one of Charles' dreams. Yeah, so. very vivid dream I had. A song called Get On It. Nice. Uh, it wasn't a wet dream, though. Well, it, it turned into been. one. It turned into one. How about you, brother? What, what's for well, you? Yep. I would say the biggest challenge is to say that just to make sure, firstly, that you just allow yourself to relax in your body and just come, come down into your body. And when, when you're in that place and something comes to you to say to someone something that a part of your system is like, don't say that. You can't say that. Say it. Take that dare. Dare to suck. Dare to to be there for someone in a way that 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 part of you knows can be. To just be that person that speaks up. Because when it's from the body, when it's from really you being home as you, it's always right time, right place. And the small self, you know, the, the alarm system part of you, it just it's only alarming because it doesn't know. It's just the unknown. You haven't been that fierce, that bold before. So take more risks where you just speak up, where you tell someone something about yourself or see something in someone else that you feel would be really powerful for them to receive. Oh man, brilliant stuff, you guys. That's a great place to wrap. I just am so honored to have you on the podcast and look forward to playing playing with you guys on multiple levels and We'll see how that shapes up. So thanks again, you guys. Thank you very much, guys. Thank Thank you, you, Brad, Brad, very much. I want to thank our guests for sharing their hearts and brilliance with us. Thank you, Torald and Isaac Corin. We're all so grateful for your contribution to the world. You can find out more about the brothers at brotherscorin.com. As we dive deeper into facing your dragon, I want to offer the opportunity for you to discover the number one hidden fear stopping you from earning what you're worth. Be sure to take the one-minute quiz at couragequiz.com. If there's something here I mentioned that you want to review again, keep in mind we keep all the notes for you, including links to everything we've talked about today. You can find the show notes for this episode at faceyourdragon.com forward slash episode 008. And finally, I would like to invite you to subscribe and leave a five-star review for the Face Your Dragon podcast by visiting faceyourdragon.com forward slash subscribe. Be sure to share this episode with your tribe on social media if it was useful for you. We'd love that. And join our conversation in the Face Your Dragon Facebook group as we talk more about your greatest fears being the very thing that will set you free. Tune in to episode nine because I'll be talking with my dear friend, Bruce Cryer. He was CEO of the HeartMath Institute for decades. Bruce gets to share his brilliance for a full episode this time around. He shared amazing tidbits on other episodes. We discuss how the rhythms of your heart can be measured and what to do when you go into fight, flight, or freeze to get back to a healthy, more functional state of neutrality or what HeartMath calls coherence and how your three brains affect your daily life, your brain, your heart, and your stomach. This incredible being and many more on the Face Your Dragon podcast. See you on the next show. And remember, when you face your dragon and take the leap, you will break free.